Hi there, Curious City fellow J.P. Swenson here. You may have noticed that disco music is having a bit of a renaissance these days. It's all over TikTok. It's playing while you're shopping and in restaurants. Plus, that's Cuff It from Beyonce's Grammy award-winning album, Renaissance. She says she was inspired by black queer house music which, by the way, has its roots in the Chicago disco scene. And hers especially, I think, did such a good job of nodding to all of the people that made disco great and that made house music great. And like, she clearly did a lot of research to put that album together. That's Curious City listener Busy Stephenson. Back in the early days of the pandemic, listening to disco and other dance music gave her a way to escape the feeling of being locked down at home. She especially loved dancing in her apartment to Dua Lipa's album, Future Nostalgia. Did a full 180, crazy. At a time when nobody was going to clubs, nobody was dancing, and I think that was a risk for her to put that album out, and she did it anyways, and to me, that album was like life-giving. When I was like in my room alone in like May 2020, Literally by myself in my bedroom, like jumping up and down to levitating. And so last year, when Busy wanted to create a band of her own, she decided to start a disco funk group. So watch me on the last one for the, for the slowdown or They call themselves Superfloss. But Busy wrote to Curious City because she has many unanswered questions about the rise of the local disco scene and why it faded away in the 80s. What is the history and the legacy of disco music in the city of Chicago? Particularly with the event known as Disco Demolition Night. We rock and roll, we'll resist, and we will triumph. It's rare to hear about disco in Chicago without a mention of Disco Demolition Night. It took place between games at a White Sox doubleheader on July 12, 1979. Music journalist Aaron Cohen has written a lot about the event and the former shock jock who orchestrated it. Okay, let's usher Steve down to the explosives. Steve Dahl, who was uh, chagrined, to put it mildly, about you know the disco format. Disco sucks. Disco sucks. And he, of course, led the infamous. Disco Demolition Night in Comiskey Park. Well, listen, we took all the disco records that you brought tonight. We got them in a giant box. And we're going to blow them up real good. And, of course, along with that was no hidden racism and homophobia. Disco Demolition Night is anti-disco, anti-gay, and anti-black. And it turns into a riot. Many people have referred to Disco Demolition Night as a punctuation mark at the end of the disco era. And for a commercial disco, it did have an impact. But this story is not about that night, or those who hated the genre for whatever reason. It's about the joy, the scene, the music, and how it evolved in Chicago in two distinct ways. On the near north side, as part of the city's emerging queer nightlife scene, people would talk about coming to the area and just 
going out on the street, like standing on the corner in the midst of all that. And just saying like, I had no idea there were this many LGBTQ people in the world, much less in Chicago. And on the South Side, in warehouses, underground clubs, and even in Catholic schools where it laid the foundation for house music. The beginning of house music is because of black kids on the South and West Side of Chicago who took Disco's Revenge, right? That's all coming up next. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Disco is many things. It is a style of music. It's a type of club. It's a culture. But what you really need to know before we jump back in time is that this new, danceable sound had origins in a number of genres from the 1960s, including soul, R&B, and funk. Still, the disco era meant different things for different communities in Chicago. So let's start with queer people on the near north side. In 1970, the long-standing prohibition on public, same-sex dancing in Chicago had finally been lifted. Before 1970, gay couples couldn't dance together. People couldn't wear shorts in bars, or they couldn't wear sunglasses, or they had to dance with opposite-sex couples. There were so many rules that eventually gay people said, no, we are going to boycott everything until we can dance in the style we want, you know, in the way we want, etc. That's Owen Keenan. He's a local LGBTQ plus historian and author. He says that disco culture had a lot to do with queer liberation, which was a new concept in those days. And ending the ban on queer dancing was just the beginning. It still wasn't safe to be out in the 70s. There was a strong anti-gay sentiment among the police and in many parts of public and private life. One place to try to escape all of that tension and fear was the discotheque. And one of the most popular discotheques in Chicago was Dugan's Bistro. Sometimes just called the Bistro for short. Eddie Dugan, who was the owner of the Bistro, had been working in bars for a while, and he and his boyfriend at the time, Ron, were dancing at actually one of the very first gay discos in Chicago, which was called PQs. And his boyfriend leaned in and said, you know, if you opened a place like this that was twice the size and had an even bigger dance floor, you'd be a millionaire. And that resonated. And the following year, Eddie... Dugan opened Dugan's Bistro at 420 North Dearborn. 
1973, Eddie signed the lease on a four-story brick building that was formerly a French restaurant. He may not have had a lot of resources at the time. But he had a very clear vision that this was going to be a gay bar, this was going to be an outrageously fun gay bar, and that he had a, a very clear notion of what kind of party this was going to be. And it was his party. Owen spoke to plenty of former Dugan's Bistro regulars while writing a book all about the club. If you walked in the door, it was stadium seating, sort of a, like a bleacher thing, maybe to the right. Beyond that was the bar, and it was a um, racetrack bar. So, you know, you could walk all the way around it, which is very important, by the way, for cruising at a gay bar. Beyond the bar, you'd find what he called the brain center of Dugan's Bistro, the dance floor. And Dugan's Bistro was part of a whole ecosystem of discotheques on the near north side. So at 5 o'clock, the area cleared out. And probably at 5.30 or 6, the LGBTQ people came in. I mean, there were so many bars down there. There was Dugan's Bistro. There was the Gold Coast. There was the Baton. There was a lesbian bar called Miz. There but were... what set Dugan's Bistro apart from other discotheques at the time was Eddie himself. He would spend the night in the bar coming up to everybody and convincing them that he wouldn't have even been there tonight except he knew you were coming in. And I'm here for you. That's Ron Eamon. Ron's story of how he stepped into Eddie's world is a common one. When I first came to Chicago, I really, I thought I was probably the only gay person in the world. I had no experience with other guys. And and I came to Chicago and the first bar that I went to, I believe, was the Gold Coast, which was a leather bar. Scared the shit out of me. The second bar I went to was Carol's, which was run by a gigantic drag queen who was drunk and had one eyelash hanging down, wanting to tongue everybody at the door as we walked in. That freaked me out. And the third bar that they took me to that night was the Bistro. Dugan's Bistro felt just right. Ron became a regular, and Eddie's good friend, and even his attorney. He says Eddie had a special knack for promotion. And if you were a bistro regular, you would be looking forward to his birthday bash all year long. Author Owen Keenan. For one of his birthdays, he had a hole cut in the ceiling, and at midnight, he emerged from the hole in the ceiling down into a bathtub that was in the middle of the dance floor while half-naked gay dancers poured champagne on him in the bathtub. Another yearly tradition Eddie held was the party on the anniversary of the Bistro's opening. So imagine going into a bar, a bar with sledgehammers and wheelbarrows and having it be a demolition party. Where, like, you're actually inviting people to, like, sledgehammer walls and stuff. Dugan's regulars I interviewed also mentioned seeing motorcycles in the bar, as well as tigers, in cannons that shot confetti and streamers off the roof. I'm sure Ron had his hands full as Eddie's attorney. Another key element of the bar was drag. 
and one of the most famous local drag performers was the Bearded Lady. And she called Dugan's Bistro home. I'm the girl with the little bit extra. Richard Knight Jr., who became a regular in Chicago's disco scene, remembers his first encounter with the Bearded Lady back in 1976. So at one point, the crowd starts kind of facing me. And I'm like, is everybody looking at me? Well, no, they're looking behind me because there was a little platform. And then I turned around. It was the Bearded Lady, who is this infamous performer. And they were now playing Honey Bee by Gloria Gaynor. And she was dressed in this gold May beekeeper outfit, solid gold, you know, with the big helmet thing, and had a big fan. And at a certain point, there was a reveal where she pulled away the fan. And I was like, she, she's a he. She has a beard. This is 1976. I've never been to a gay bar. The bearded lady, whose real name was Bob Thice, became a local celebrity. But she also became a symbol of self-love, fluidity, and the community's metamorphosis into pride and acceptance. Which, for Richard, who was born and raised in small-town Nebraska, meant a lot. So I had literally been kicked out of high school and out of the state for being gay. And this was ne- the term was never used. What they what I was told was given your true nature, which is wild. They couldn't even say it. And I didn't even know why this was happening to me. Richard was just 19 when he went to Dugan's Bistro for the first time, and he used a fake hunting license to get in. He remembers that when he entered the club, you should be dancing by the Bee Gees was playing. And so it was like part of this final step was walking in and seeing a room full of gay men who were unabashedly, they were kissing. Richard didn't even identify as a gay man at the time. We just started dancing and it was like, I think I said, I'm in the fifth circle of hell. It's fabulous. And I was terrified and it was wonderful. And all these people dressed up. People came in like high costume. And, you know, there was one one person who would go there who called themselves the disco baby who would wear a diaper and then have huge hair with like disco records like embedded in it. It was common for people to have disco personas. But for most people, disco fashion meant form-fitting, bright colors, and glamorous patterns. Think flared pants, spandex, and platform shoes. And on the hot, crowded dance floor, lasers were firing off all around you. The iconic mirror ball would spin over your head. The music would be beating throughout your whole body. And the DJ would stand in the booth, spinning the LPs, orchestrating it all. Everything from Diana Ross to Donna Summer. So let's dance. Let's dance. Let's dance. Let's dance. Viola Wills to the Isley Brothers. Who's that lady? Who's that lady? And the music started late. For the average person, you're not going to come until 10, 30, 11, 12 o'clock at night. 
here's Dugan's bistro attorney, Ron Eamon, again. I mean, everyone came home from work and took a disco nap so that they could go out and stay up till 4 or 5 in the morning and still make it to work the next day. Also part of the scene was drugs. In Dugan's Bistro, you would see men wearing bandanas soaked in amyl nitrate tied around their arms, or towels clenched between their teeth. Well, my experience throughout my life as a gay man, drugs were very prevalent. Drugs were available at any gay bar that I went to. The difference is, is if you were a regular, you knew who to buy them from, and if you weren't, you didn't. With all the outrageous parties, liberating queer culture, and carefree camaraderie, Dugan's Bistro became legendary. Again, author Owen Keenan. In 1982, Dugan's Bistro had been open for nine years. And what they found out right before that was that their lease was not going to be renewed. Plans were underway for a huge redevelopment project, gentrifying the near north side. Dugan's Bistro, along with other discos in the area, was forced to close. So on the ninth anniversary of the opening of the Bistro... Eddie Dugan threw his biggest party yet, and it was the closing party. You know, it was sort of the very first years of the AIDS crisis, the AIDS pandemic, and it changed everything, you know? And it was sort of that carefree celebratory era had come to an end. But that celebratory era that incredible period from sort of 1970 through, you know, 1982, that dozen years, so much happened with gay culture, with gay community, with gay society, with gay arts, with all of it. And it's really important to sort of celebrate and resurrect those things because so often that generation is thought of as the generation that died from AIDS. Sadly, in 1987, AIDS also took Eddie Dugan's life. He was just 40. I mean, I think that was the important thing about Eddie Dugan, too, was not only that he, like any great businessman, I suppose, not only did he see what was going on, but he could also anticipate it. He anticipated what the community wanted, and he gave it to them with glitter and sequins. I would pay big money to be able to go back to Bistro again, to be able to spend a night with Eddie again. But not everyone felt welcome at Dugan's Bistro. Most notably, People of color who faced discrimination there in the form of unwritten door policies. But there was another disco scene brewing in Chicago. It was mostly black, underground, and flush with innovation. That's coming up.
Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Dugan's Bistro had an ugly side, one that it shared with many other near north side discotheques. It was known for discriminating against people of color. As clubgoer Frederick Dunson remembers, The first thing that if you talk to a person of color that comes out about Bistro, that went to Bistro would say, oh, the door policy, that's the first thing that's going to come out of their mouth hand down. At the door, Frederick and others were asked to show multiple forms of ID or were told they didn't meet a dress code. That way, they could be pulled out of line, and the club could limit the number of people of color allowed inside at any one time. But a whole separate, vibrant disco scene was going on in Chicago where queer people of color were welcome. In clubs and loft parties in Chicago's Loop and sprinkled on the south side. These loft parties were inspired by New York City's underground discos, taking place in warehousey spaces and office buildings. One of the first of these loft parties in Chicago opened in 1973, the same year as Dugan's Bistro. Its official name was U.S. Studio, but later it became known as The Warehouse. Located in the Loop, The Warehouse had a challenging first few years. The first building burned down. The second was shut down by city inspectors. But eventually, it found a home at 206 South Jefferson in 1977. It became one of the most popular spots in the city for dance music. I talked with Lori Branch, a longtime Chicago DJ and music historian, who was a regular at the three-story brick warehouse back in the day. On that first floor, you kind of felt like a sense of hominess. You know, good lighting, nice chairs, these deep well window seats so you could sit in the windows. There was a basement where they served non-alcoholic refreshments, an entire first floor for dancing, with a couple of strobes and a wall of speakers and a second floor for lounging. The lounge area was important because you could see people and talk to them. The music wasn't as loud, and so you you could kind of, it was sort of the the foyer, you know, like a big entryway, like, okay, you're about to have this experience. The warehouse was carefully crafted by its owner, Robert Williams, who wanted the space to have state-of-the-art lighting and sound. Lori says that's one of the things that set it apart from the competing loft parties and discos. That's what changed things for people. They just weren't satisfied, you know, without having this sort of surround sound, beautiful experience. At the warehouse, the DJs were center stage, constantly experimenting and innovating with the sound. Williams sought out DJs who were ahead of the curve, and so he went to New York and convinced an up-and-coming DJ, Francis Warren Nichols, to relocate to Chicago. Nichols had an extensive record collection, and the choice turned out to be a big win for the warehouse. So he comes to Chicago at a time where he's got this tutelage from these people in New York and where new technology is allowing him to do different things with it. You know, not only mixing, but, you know, drum machines and, you know, different things that he can add. Effects. You know, effects were a new thing. And Lori says Francis, best known by his DJ name Frankie Knuckles, 
made the warehouse the talk of the town. His style was a mix of disco and soul, with a dose of gospel influence. But he played everything from rock to R&B, too. Knuckles used electronic synthesizers and drum machines. He also used effects to make an experience out of his mixes. For example, he used Kraftwerk's Trans-Europe Express to make it sound like a train was circling around the club and then into the center of the dance floor. making it sound like it was coming right at you. The first time Lori went to the warehouse, it changed the whole direction of her life. I don't remember yesterday, but I remember 1980. In 1980, Lori was a senior in high school, and her group of friends were, as she put it, a bi-curious, artistic, interesting little clique. Her friend John suggested that they check out the warehouse. And he said, you know, there's this club called The Warehouse. And it's a gay club. And I was intrigued. You know, I was not sort of out at the time. I was very seriously involved with my high school boyfriend, but certainly was intrigued by it and knew that I kind of had that in me, but had never explored it. And so Lori and her friends decided to go. But there was a problem. Her parents would never have allowed it. I can't go to a club that opens at midnight. My father's a minister. My mom is a teacher. They're pillars of the community. They would die if they knew. And so her older sister, who was the first person Lori came out to, said she would cover for her. But Lori was only 17, and you had to be 18 to get into the warehouse. Before we went, we got fake IDs from Maxwell Street. There was a guy in a van who made fake IDs. I actually still own that ID. And it, you know, put a couple years on me. And I, I, you know, I showed him my fake ID. We paid $5. You go up a very narrow flight of stairs. You get there to the top, they eyeball you, they give you a hand stamp, and then you enter. I remember walking through the lounge and just feeling like, where am I? You know, because I'm a kid. I, I was a very sheltered kid living in Morgan Park. I didn't have any experiences. And so this is kind of like my first experience being out anywhere. And I go into a, a gay club that's mostly men. And that's when Lori had a beautiful moment. I noticed two women sitting on a love seat, kind of intimately, and I just felt like this flutter, like this. there was something in me that got stirred up. And I was like, wow, I'm not the only one. <laughs> I think it, it felt like pride, you know, not to sound cliche, but there weren't a lot of places where you could feel okay. You know, my parents kicked me out of the house when they found out that I was gay. They said I was dead to them. This was the experience for a lot of young people. Get out, get away. We don't want you. So there's this place that says we do want you. This is where you belong, and this is where you're celebrated. It meant everything. That first night, Lori knew she wanted to become a DJ herself, which was a rare choice for a young woman at the time. She started DJing where other teens and young adults were hanging out, at high school dance parties that were all the rage from the 70s into the 80s. The scene was the people and the music, the people and the music. You know, when we were kids, so we didn't care so much about, you know, nowadays, you know, you got to have atmosphere and gimmicks and all kinds of stuff to just get people interested. But back then, it was just about, you know, community. Lori says she and other young DJs were pollinators, taking this music from the warehouse and other loft spaces 
to the next generation. Many were really young, still in high school. People like Wayne Williams. Wayne Williams is a great example of a person who was in both of those worlds. And this is a straight guy who's going into gay clubs because he hears this music and he's like, this is something that we need in our community. As a teenager, Wayne was not only a huge music buff, but an entrepreneur in the dance party scene. We met up at one of his favorite restaurants. He remembered attending a high school dance party where he first heard the mixing style of Ron Hardy, another hugely influential DJ. When I heard this music, a black gay disco, I heard this music, and I was like, whoa. Because I, I heard kind of like the commercial disco, the early commercial disco, and the disco the white gay DJs were playing. And it was cool, but the black gay DJs, what they were playing was, for me, it was more soulful. Had that energy, and I was like, oh, that's, I'm going to bring that back. And it was crazy for me because back then I only had one turntable, right? But in these clubs, right, where these gay DJs were playing, they had mixers and two turntables. And so this song kept playing. I was like, what? This sounds like magic. Because I was waiting for the record to go off and come back on. How is he keeping that record going? Wayne continued going to clubs, learning from the innovators of the time. He then formed his own DJ collective called the Chosen Few Disco Corporation. They would DJ, but they also became promoters, hyping the teen dance party scene. One of the most well-known was at Mendel Catholic High School, an all-boys prep school in the Roseland neighborhood. It was called the Bi-Level Disco. Radio host Kevin McFall hung out there lots. And so... The bi-level disco, I would say, was a trailblazer in terms of that party experience. And the gym and the cafeteria of the school comprised the two different levels. They had a DJ on each floor, spinning everything from R&B to rock and, of course, disco. And so the whole south side of Chicago word spread about these events and, and these became very massive and it was very lucrative certainly for Mendo. These things inside my soul, they make me lose control. It goes on and on. In its heyday, the bi-level disco would be filled with 3,000 teenagers dancing every weekend. The organizers brought in the city's hottest dance crews and DJs, including the Chosen Few Disco Corporation, to keep the crowd coming back. With promoters being the tastemakers and selectors, I think they were the biggest influences on how the party experience evolved and became more popularized and adopted by so many across the city. By the 1980s, the near north side disco scene was in a freefall. HIV was devastating queer communities in Chicago. Clubs were shutting down, and disco music was falling off the music charts. But on the south and west sides, it was a different story. Disco was evolving into something entirely new, as Wayne Williams remembers. A lot of early producers took disco grooves or samples or melodies and made house records. And, and kept it alive. House music was brewing in places like The Warehouse, pioneered by innovative DJs like Frankie Knuckles, who leveraged technology to blend genres and create smooth, refined dance mixes with a soulful fluidity. 
Frankie Knuckles influenced a whole generation of young people of color who were hearing house music on the radio, at high school dances, at loft parties, and then started producing it themselves. House music sounded like a lot of things. <laughs> so they were emulating what they heard at the warehouse and what they heard on the radio and sort of creating their own style. But it sounded like disco. It sounded like rock. The popularity of house music grew and grew throughout the 80s and 90s. And it didn't stop at Chicago's borders. It spread across the country, to the UK and beyond. Over the years, it has evolved, mutating into countless subgenres like techno and hip house. And these days, influencing those at the very top of the charts, from Drake to Lady Gaga, and of course, Beyonce. Lori Branch says house music owes its success to those first gay underground discos she went to as a teenager, like the warehouse. Now, this came out of this movement of people who were brave enough to create these spaces and to explore in this way and to allow straight people into their spaces so that they could transplant this music. Frankie Knuckles, who became known as the godfather of house, passed away in 2014. And though by that time he'd returned to New York, the impact he had on the Chicago dance scene lives on. Lori Branch is still DJing and preserving the stories of house music's pioneers. Wayne Williams is still with The Chosen Few, hosting massive gatherings like The Chosen Few Picnic every summer. Frankie Knuckles refers to house um, not as disco's revival, which is kind of along the lines of what we're talking about, but disco's revenge. And I'm kind of curious to hear your ideas about that. Well, I understand why he would say that. I think that um, <laughs> disco's revenge. I love Frankie Knuckles so much. That's a great line. I, didn't know, I never heard that one, but wow, that's a great line. And knowing Frankie, I knew Frankie very well. Oh, my God, that makes so, he's something. He's going to make me cry, even thinking about him. Right here on the south and west side of Chicago, that's where house music started, started right here. And we, we as Chicagoans of all colors, of all nationalities, should be proud of that fact. Curious City is supported by the Conan Family Foundation and is produced by Jason Mark and Joe Dassault. Adriana Cardona-Magigad is Curious City's reporter, and Maggie Sivit is the digital and engagement producer. Marie Mendoza is WBEZ's podcast fellow. Johanna Zorn edits the show. I'm J.P. Swenson, Curious City's luminary fellow. Thanks for listening. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.